When one preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, he must of necessity preach Jesus, the one who worked miracles, the one who walked on water, the one who raised the dead, the one who healed the sick, the one who multiplied the loaves and the fishes. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you might have life in his name. John's record of the life of Christ pushes for us and promotes for us and provides for us this incentive to believe that he is the Son of God. When you and I explore the master of miracles, we see that he demonstrated his power over nature. The Lord could turn water into wine. He could command the wind and the waves by saying, Peace be still, and they would be still. The Lord also demonstrated power over the spiritual forces. When the Lord commanded those who were possessed by demons for those demons to come out, and they did. The Lord also demonstrated his authority over illnesses and diseases. Those who were born blind, those who had been lame from the time they were children, the Lord was able to heal them and make them completely whole. And the Lord was able even to conquer death. He told Lazarus in John chapter 11, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead for four days came out of that tomb and was whole once again. You see, Galilee is where a number of these great, mighty works of Jesus occurred. When Jesus performed these miracles, they were to capture people's attention, to make them realize who he was and make them realize that they answer before the God of heaven. Brother Cain did a great job reading for us Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. I want to reflect for just a moment on what he said. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. So we know that the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and then the city of Capernaum, all three cities around the Sea of Galilee, their people had witnessed the mighty works of Jesus, the things which he did, the things which he taught. He told them if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon that had been done in Bethsaida and Chorazin, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But then he looked to Capernaum, the city where he spent the majority of his time, in fact, where our Lord lived. That city saw the Lord's Mighty works, and he said, even Sodom would have remained if the mighty works had been done there. That tells us that the Lord's miracles were given to move people to respect him and to obey him. What should they do for us today? Nothing less. This morning we're going to study about Jesus walking on the water. We're going to look at the timing of all these events. There's some very interesting background. I, 
if I can do the best job I can do, I'd like to take your minds, carry you all the way back to that day on the Sea of Galilee when the Lord walked on the water, and for you to picture yourself as being there and witnessing these events. Second of all, we want to look at the text, particularly the one found in Mark and Matthew and John. And then we're going to look at some of the teaching we can derive from it. Let's begin, first of all, with the timing. Matthew, Mark, and John all record the event, and each one of them provide a little bit of detail, something that will be able to help us appreciate what they're saying. Let me put you in memory of what is taking place. John the Baptist, the cousin of our Lord, had just been killed and this certainly was weighing heavily upon our Lord's mind. Matthew 14 says in verse 12, Then the disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. The Lord is trying to escape to have a few moments alone to grieve over the loss of his cousin. We do know that there's also another major event that is in the background. The Lord had sent his disciples out on what we sometimes refer to as a limited commission. He'd sent them out two by two and they had worked hard. Not only had they, but the Lord, and now they're gathered back together, and they're exhausted. We read in verse 7 of Mark 6, And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. When you get down to verse 12, they've returned. And so when they went out and preached that the people should repent, and they cast out demons, and anointed with all oh, many who were sick, and healed them, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves." You have to realize that there are times when you work, you work, you work, and you put all this effort into it, and now you're exhausted. Those of our group who returned last Saturday evening after spending a week in Costa Rica and preaching the gospel there and teaching, they were exhausted, and many of them were still trying to catch up on their sleep a day or two later. You see people who are out doing God's work. There's the work you're doing, but the exhaustion. And so you realize there's the sadness of John the Baptist having been killed. There's the exhaustion of having worked diligently. Now let me provide for you the third item of background here, the timing. The Lord had fed 5,000 people. We studied about that last Sunday morning, how the crowds began to press against him and, and crush him to the point where he even had to get a boat and put it a little bit off from the water and the water so he could be able to preach to them. Well, if you will now, let's look at John's, or Mark 6, verses 45 and 46, and see the charge the Lord gives. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. 
and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now it's important that you and I realize that the Lord has said, I want the rest of you guys to get in this boat and I want you to go to the other side. The Lord is looking for some alone time. He's looking at some opportunity for him to go into the mountain to pray. And so he has sent them to the other side. Well, now for a few minutes, let's look at the text. We're going to use Mark's account as the basis, but we'll add some notations from Matthew and John's record as well. Now when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now I want you to notice a few details, if you will, as we go through this passage and try to appreciate what is being said. We learn here the time was evening from Mark. John says it's already dark. That means as the Lord sends them out, it's going toward dusk and then finally it's dark as they depart from the shore. The Lord sees them straining at rowing from the land in the middle of the sea. Now let me remind you, it's dark. There's a miracle here. They are some three to four miles away. And I don't know about you, but when I drive a car at night, I'm lucky to see maybe 30, 40 yards ahead of you. You don't have lights, but the Lord sees them out three or four miles on the water and he is on the land and he sees them straining at rowing. Matthew tells us they are tossed by the waves for the wind was contrary. I don't know about you, if any of you have ever been on the water during a period of a storm. I was back when I was a young fellow, probably about 16, 17 years of age. Had spent a week on the backwater down in South Alabama. Came up a storm and we thought we needed to get to land. We turned on the little trolling motor on the boat. Had two paddles, had the boat motor going as wide open. Both of us paddling and going backwards. Talk about the wind being contrary. Being scary. Yeah, it was. The wind was blowing them around. John says a great wind was blowing and they had rowed for three or four miles. You imagine you're putting all your effort, all these 12 apostles now, they're rowing and they're not going anywhere. That's enough to make a person very nervous in and of itself. 
But we learn that Jesus came walking. He's walking on top of the water. But we learn from Mark, it was at the fourth watch of the night. Mark would have been using Roman time. That tells us it's about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. If they left about dark, they they rode about three to four miles. They're working hard. They're exhausted now on the water, and it's early in the morning. Now, I want you to imagine the disciples are tired. It's early in the morning. They've rode all night. The wind's blowing hard, and Jesus comes walking. And they see him, and they suppose that it is a ghost. The Greek word here is phantasm, from which you know, you've heard the phantom of the opera. It's like a, a ghost. Either they accepted the superstition of their day where there were people who believed there were ghosts, or they possibly, because they'd had interaction with the demons, they'd cast demons out of people. They maybe thought, well, one of those demons is coming to get us. We don't know, but what we do know is they cried out with fear. What is this? We're out in the middle of the water. You're not normally going to see somebody walking toward you on the top of the water, especially three to four miles out into the ocean or the sea here. But Jesus responds, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus knew their fear. He identified himself. He tried to allay their fears. But you see, when you get to Matthew's account, Matthew provides us some information that neither Mark nor Luke or John record, and it's found in verses 28 through 31. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now I want you to imagine stepping out of a boat into waves. But Peter is looking at Jesus. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Okay, I'm going to step out of the boat. And now Peter's walking on the water. He had the first miracle, the Lord saw them on the water in the middle of the night. Second miracle, Jesus comes walking on the water. Third miracle, now Peter's walking on the water to go to Jesus. But it says Peter saw the wind, was boisterous, and was afraid and began to sink. He began to see the waves, and some of the waves can get up to his six feet in height on the Sea of Galilee. I remember a few years ago, we got up early in the morning to go out to for our boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Most of the time, the water is very calm, almost like glass. This morning, there was just a little wind blowing, and next thing you know, the boat is rocking back and forth. The spray is coming up over the bow of the boat and spraying everybody, and everybody's covering up, and Oh, you, and you think, well, I can see where we're going. We're on a big boat. We're not far from land. You imagine Peter's on the water. 
He sees the wind is boisterous. He begins to sink. And he immediately cries out, Lord, save me. He realizes, I'm sinking. I'm going to drown here. You know, I can't imagine what goes through the mind of a person who is panicking like that. I'm sure many of you know what happened just a few days ago at Branson, Missouri. One of the infamous ducks sank with people on it during a storm. A number, in fact, a family who were members of the church lost their life on that ride. And you think about the panic that has to ensue as somebody begins to sink. Now you're three to four miles out from land. You're sinking in the water. The wind is boisterous. Peter says, Lord, save me. But the Lord responds to Peter with some pretty stern words. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, you should have realized who it is that is with you. And the truth is, Peter failed. He failed in his faith. The result was, when they got in the boat, the winds ceased, Matthew tells us. This is not the occasion where the Lord is sleeping in the bow of the boat and he arises and says to the wind and to the waves, peace be still. This is, that's another event. Here, just as soon as the Lord gets in the boat, the wind stops like that. Those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, Matthew records. You know, as he gets in the boat and the wind stop and now the Lord's there, they worship him. And notice... What they say, truly, you are the Son of God. These men have been provided with more than ample evidence to know that he is the Son of God. Mark says they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. John says they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. There's miracle number next. You see, finally, just as soon as the Lord gets in the boat, the wind ceases, but they're no longer rowing now. They're no longer in the middle. They're at the land. You can see all these great miracles. Now, for just a few minutes, I'd like to spend some time talking about the teaching of this passage of Scripture. I'm sure there's a lot of more lessons that could be drawn, but I just want to look at four very quickly with you. These apply to us. These take an event recorded in Scripture and say to us, this is how you and I can respond. And the first is going to be fear is avoidable. The second, faith is attainable. Third is failure is anticipated. And finally, forgiveness is available. Now, I want you to imagine yourself being in that boat. The disciples were frightened. They were exhausted. And when they saw Jesus walking on on the water, their imagination started running wild with them. Remember what verse 26 says? They were feared, they troubled, saying, It's a ghost. They cried out for fear. You know, you have to realize sometimes you and I find ourselves much like them. We're looking, we're saying, what could it be? And we start looking and anticipating things that maybe even aren't there. 
They thought they had seen a ghost. I've had people tell me that they thought someone had spoken to them who's passed on. I've heard people say they, they've thought they've saw things or seen things. and You know, when you're, you're exhausted and when your mind is troubled, it's easy to be afraid. But with Jesus near, one need not fear. Listen to Matthew 10 and verse 28. And do not fear those who are able to kill the body and not kill the soul, but fear him who's able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. If you're going to look and say, who shall I fear? You always fear Jesus because he has the most power. But what about Jesus? Romans 8 tells us, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to understand there's nothing that can you put between us and the love of God. God's love is there and available through Jesus Christ. And thus the writer of the book of Hebrews says, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper I will not fear what shall man do to me. Those men in that boat knew that the Lord had commissioned and commanded them to go to the other side. Will he take care of them? Absolutely he will. The solution is in essence what Jesus says in verse 27. Trust me. Fear is avoidable when we trust the Lord. And I want to tell you, some of us may go through some really tough times in life. Some of these storms may be great. However, Jesus says, trust me. And we can face those days without fear. Now, second of all, faith is attainable. Jesus had given these disciples more than ample proof that he was the Son of God. He proved he had the power. He proved he had the ability. You've got to remember before this event, he's turned water to wine in their presence. He has healed both a lame man and a blind man. And now the Lord has given them the power to cast out demons, given them the power to heal people. Surely they have to realize who he is. And Jesus is disturbed that they have so little faith in him. If you'll remember Luke chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, the other passage to which I referred earlier. They came to him and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Jesus' question to them was appropriate. Where is your faith? When you and I find ourselves caught up in one of the storms of life, the question is, where is your faith? Matthew 16, verse 8. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? 
Why would you think that? If the Lord can take five loaves and two fish and feed close to 20,000 people, don't you think He can take care of you? In that great passage of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, back in verse 25, He says, Do not worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll put on. Is not the life more than the food and the body more than the clothing? And then he comes down, he says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Oh, yes. Faith is attainable when you and I realize that the God will provide. But it's only when you and I listen. Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. John 12, 47 and 48. Jesus said, these words I have spoken, the same shall judge in the last day. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 32. He spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You abide in what he says, you listen to what he says, you keep it in your mind. Faith is attainable. Third of all, failure can be anticipated. Anytime and every time when we take our eyes off of Jesus, there's failure. Man begins to lose his focus. I want you to look with me, verse 30 again. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. He saw the wind was boisterous. Before that, Peter saw Jesus walking on the water. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Peter had been focusing on the Lord. Now Peter does what? He focuses on the wind. He focuses on the waves. When you go back to Luke chapter 9, you see an event happen. The disciples are arguing about their greatness. They're only concerned about themselves. And Jesus says there arose a dispute among them about which of them would be the greatest That's when failure comes, when you and I take our eyes off of the Lord and start focusing them on ourselves. When Peter thought only in human terms, he failed. Let me tell you, one of the greatest passages in the Bible comes from Matthew 16. You remember back earlier, he said in about verses 15 and 16, he said, who men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Some say you're Jeremiah, some Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter stands out and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You watch Jesus, or what's Peter doing at this point? He's focusing on Jesus, who he is and what he is. But you come down to verses 16 or 21 through 23, and it says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Now listen carefully. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. 
You want me to tell you when Peter fails? When Peter takes his eyes off the Lord and starts focusing his eyes on himself or what other men think. In Luke 22, Peter finds himself among a number of the disciples who were saying they would stand strong with the Lord even to the point of death. And the Lord tells Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I pray for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You see, if you start looking at failure, failure can always be anticipated when we take our eyes off the Lord and start putting them somewhere else. Finally, forgiveness is available. One of the greatest lessons in my judgment of this passage is what happens with Peter in verses 31 and 32. As he begins to sink, the Lord stretches out his hand and he saves him. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. The Lord stretched out his hand. Have you ever thought about the Lord stretching out his hand? Maybe you've fallen out of the boat and someone reaches out their hand. Why are they reaching out their hand? They want to save you. They want to help you. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus has His hand stuck out for those who are Christians. Yes, you may be sinking, but He says, I want to save you. In Luke 19, verse 10, you know there's a little man in a tree in Jericho. He climbed up there to see Jesus passing by. A lot of people began to shoo away Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector. And Jesus' response was, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's as if Jesus is now still sticking out his hand and saying, Come unto me. And that's going to lead us to our invitation. This sermon on the water shows that he had power over the wind and the water. And Jesus takes us by the hand and We can walk with Him through the storms of life. His hand is extended to us. You're not a Christian. The Lord's hand's extended to you. He invites you. He pleads with you to come to Him. You come in faith. You come repenting of your sins. You confess that faith and be baptized. You'll then be added by the Lord to His body, the church. For those of us who are Christians, sometimes we're like Peter. Our faith begins to wane. We begin to drown in the storms of life. But there will be a day when we'll reach the shores of time with the Lord. I think about immediately after he got into the boat there at the land. You can be with the Lord when he makes it to the shore. If you'll walk with him. We're going to sing the song, I'm Resolved. 
If you are resolved, it's your determination to serve the Lord and you need to become a Christian, we want you to come. If you're a child of God needing to be forgiven of sins in your life, let's pray together. Would you come as together we stand and sing?